but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 4. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you, and you can take that one home with you if you want. It's a freebie for you, or you can just follow along on the screen. But Acts 4, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, fifth book of the New Testament. Um, and here's, if you've been missing, if it's your first time here, if you've been sleeping for the last six weeks, whatever one of those things you know, is applicable to you, let me get you caught up about where we've been. The book of Acts is part two of a previous book. It is a sequel. It's The Empire Strikes Back. It's Rocky II. It's, you know, The Godfather. Whatever sequel you love, it's that. And part one is the Gospel of Luke, okay, where Luke, the Gospel, covers the the life of Christ from his birth until his ascension. The book of Acts covers from his ascension till about 62-ish A.D. It covers the first 30 years of the church and what happens next after Jesus goes back. And before he goes back into heaven, what does he do? He tells his disciples, got a mission for you. You're going to be my witnesses, but you can't do it yet. You got to wait, wait for the spirit. So the spirit comes a couple days later, the 120 that are in that room, they start speaking in tongues. Everyone starts freaking out because they hear him speaking in their own languages, like what's going on. And Peter says, hey, this is exactly what the Old Testament said. This is about Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. Believe in him, and 3,000 people do. So the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon, right? And so they got all these people, and they're like, okay, what do we do now? What are we going to do with all these folks? These are newbies. They don't know anything. What are we going to do? Well, what they do is they commit themselves to the apostles' teaching, i.e. to following the teachings of Christ, and secondly, to being in community, to doing life together. Very simple, but that's what they do, and the church continues to grow. It continues to swell, right? And it's almost really at this point unopposed. And so they're just doing life. They're loving life. And we saw last week, so Peter and John are heading to the temple one day at the three o'clock prayer meeting and they're on the way and there's a guy who's been there for 40 plus years begging because he's crippled. He's got this, this life situation that defines him and he's begging for his daily bread. And Peter says, I got no money for you. What I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Get up and walk. He gets up and walk. He does the Macarena and the electric slide all the way in, all right? And everyone's amazed, and they're saying, oh, my goodness, look at this. And Peter says, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He points to Christ. And that's where we're at, and that's where we pick up today. But what we're about to see is this. The enemy of your soul hates you, hates the church, hates Christ, and he is not just going to let Jesus be proclaimed and people's lives to be changed without being in opposition. And so he is now going to start opposing and persecuting the church. Because that's what he does. Look, and if you are here and you're a high school kid and you're going to Savannah Arts or Country Day or you're over at Benedictine or whatever and you think that you're just going to live your life for Christ and be a witness and Satan is not going to oppose that, he's going to. 
And if you're going to try to raise these kids to, to follow Christ and you're going to be a, a witness and a light at, your, at Gulfstream or at Hunter or wherever you are, and you think that Satan is not going to oppose that, he is because that's what he does. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is just different attacks of the enemy on the church. Attacks from without, attacks from within, all these things. He's just going to attack the church from all over. And it's great for us because we get to see his strategy, which hasn't changed for 6,000 years, by the way. And we can see how the early church handled it so that we, when we face it, can handle it. Because it's going to happen. All right, this is what Jesus said. This is what he tells his disciples. He says, do y'all think that I've come to give peace on the earth? You know the honest answer is there? Yeah, we do. That's what we do, sing at Christmas, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild. I don't know what mercy mild is, but I know peace on earth. All right, that's what we, we, yeah, peace on earth, that's what you bring. He says, I, no, I tell you, rather division. From now on in one house, there'll be five divided against two and two against three and three divided and mother against daughter and against father and mother-in-law against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And that's not usually, Jesus doesn't need to be in that conversation for that to take place, but <laughs> if you had him, it comes, you know. But he says, no, I'm, there will be division sometimes. Expect it. So how do we handle it? How do we handle direct opposition? Because that's what's going to happen today. Right in your face, what do we do? Well, let's just look what happens to them, and we'll see. So we're just going to walk through the narrative. I'll make some observations, and at the end, I'll kind of say, hey, here's what they did. Here's some encouragement for us, all right? Acts 4, hopefully you found it by now, because you could have written it by now. And, okay, here we go. Let's jump, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, now, again, this is a continuation from chapter 3. So the story is still going on. The guy's doing the running man up there. He's like, woo, look at me, I'm still walking. And Peter's preaching. And so the number four that's there, remember, those, those numbers weren't added until 1,000 years after this was written. So the story is continued from chapter three. So the guy's still there. They're speaking to the people. And right then, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So here they are, they're preaching, they're pointing to Christ, this guy's doing the running man, everyone's excited, and the, all the religious leaders kind of boom. And I love it, it says they're greatly annoyed. Don't you love it when religious people get annoyed? I love it, okay? It's great, right? But they're annoyed, and why are they annoyed? Two reasons, number one, it says the Sadducees are there, and the Sadducees are a group of people, they're kind of like the wealthy political class. They don't believe in anything spiritual, they don't believe in demons or angels and, and eternal life or anything, resurrection of the dead, and so one reason they're annoyed is because they're talking about resurrection when they don't believe in it, so they're mad. But another reason is they had their little status quo prayer meeting at three o'clock, and everyone was there, and this guy's out doing the Macarena, and everyone leaves the prayer meeting, and goes out and sees what's going on there. And they're starting to lose influence and they're starting to lose power. And people aren't listening to them anymore. And religious people love power. And they love to have people follow them and they're losing that and so they are annoyed at them. And so what do they do? They arrest them. They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day. It's late at night. They're thinking, let's let them sit there for a while and think about this. We'll talk to them in the morning. Or it's already evening. But here's what I love, verse four. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Picture this. Peter's preaching, running man's being running, all right? And people are listening and they're amazed. These guys walk down and they arrest them. They throw them in chains. They drag them off. And in the middle of that still, 
5,000 people, 5,000 men. Doesn't even count the women. It could have been double the amount, 10,000 people, who knows? But five to 10,000 people believe, despite the fact that Peter and John and the running man dude are getting drug off to jail. That'd be like me preaching a sermon and here I go and I'm preaching and, rah, rah, and all of a sudden the cops come in and they tase me and I'm all like, and I'm over here and then they throw me in cuffs and they start dragging me off and I'm like, Ethan, hurry up, get up front and start singing just as I am, all 33 verses of it and go play. And I'll be like, who wants to do this with me? Who wants to follow Jesus? And everyone's like, I want to get tased too. <laughs> and so they come running down front and all these people, despite me getting tased and drug off, they followed you. That's what's going on, right? That, that's the power of what God is doing at the portico of Solomon here in the temple. 5,000 men. It's amazing. And so all the guys with the funny hats get together the next day. Next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Same dudes that, that did this to Jesus 50 plus days earlier. Same guys. Same religious leaders who sent him to Pilate. Same guys who hated Christ. Same guys who had him beaten. And they set him in their midst. When they set them in their midst, they inquired. And they asked him the same question they've asked Jesus time and time again. By what power or by what name did you do this? And it's a loaded question. It's actually like a setup question. It's one of those questions like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You tell us, Jesus. And whatever way he answers, he's in trouble. If he answers one way, he's in trouble with Rome. If he answers one way, he's in trouble with them, right? Because if you say as, for them, anything supernatural that happened is anyone other than Yahweh, then it's a, it's a death sentence. But for Rome, they got multi-gods. They got Caesar, they got Hermes, they got Zeus, they got all these guys. And so if you're gonna say what Peter's gonna say, you're gonna get in trouble with them too. So what does he do? I love the response. Peter, and underline this in your Bible, filled with the Holy Spirit. See, that's a key statement because anything that happens after this, anything he says, anything he does, is empowered and controlled by the Spirit, which means this, that it is filled with love, that it is filled with joy, that it is filled with peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's what it's gonna be. Why? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. So he's gonna talk and he's going to share truth, but he's gonna do so in a way that is loving and kind and gentle and faithful and all those things. And here's why that's important for us. Because we need to be able to communicate truth in a way that is winsome and truthful, but yet at the same time gentle and humble. Because some Christians, and I hope it's not us, but they wear it like a badge of honor when they can be obnoxious and offensive. It's kind of like a, uh, it's like their Boy Scout badge. Like, have you gotten your, you know, I, I'm a mean Christian badge yet? No, I'm still being the obnoxious Christian badge. I haven't gotten that one yet. And when, I'll move on to that later. And that's what, it's kind of this badge of honor. The more people I can get to be not like me, that is not Peter. In fact, he is respectful to these same men who crucified Jesus and arrest them falsely. He says, rulers of the people and elders. He speaks respectfully to them, right? He, he's not... Y'all crackheads, listen up. I'll tell you what's going on, all right? It's not where he's going. He's rulers, elders, right? And then he answers their question, but he kind of does it with asking a question. He says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people. 
of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, is, by him, this man is standing before you. And so he kind of does what Jesus does every time he's asked a trick question. He kind of asks a question in return. Do you really want to know how we did this? If you do, here it is. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, whom you killed, whom God raised, healed this guy. Bada bing, bada boom, period. That's what he says. That right there is enough for him to die. It's right there enough for them to kill him, right? And don't miss the irony. Two months earlier, here's little Peter sitting by a fire with an eight-year-old girl. Do you know Jesus? Never heard of him. Are you sure? Positive. Now he's standing before the guys that really can kill him and saying, how did you do this? It was Jesus. He's the one, and I'm with him. The irony but yet the power of the Spirit in this guy's life and how it changed him. And, but he doesn't just stop there. He further explains to these guys. He says, this Jesus, and he quotes the Old Testament in a verse that's quoted seven times in the New Testament by Jesus himself. He says, this Jesus, he's the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the, the cornerstone. So you guys are the builders. You're kind of shuffling through all the stones and mm, I don't like this one. It's no good. And oh, this one's no good. Oh, this Jesus one. We certainly, this is useless. And they throw it out. He says, that one that you threw out, that one became the, the first stone laid and the biggest stone and the stone where all the way the building rests on it and all the angles and all the direction of the building are based on that one stone. That stone becomes the chief stone. And you thought it was junk. You discarded it. You threw it out, thought it was useless. And then he makes this tremendous statement. You read it earlier. And in my sanctified imagination, which gets a little bit beyond sanctified sometimes, but I, I picture this. The, remember the scene in A Few Good Men when Tom Cruise is about, he's a, is he going to make the choice? Is he going to slam Jack Nicholson? Is he going to go after him? And he's kind of like shaking and he's kind of drinks his water and he turns around. It's like that one moment of, am I going to do it? And he turns around and he says, I got one more question for you. And he goes forward. That's this image like here. Peter is like, but he doesn't even hesitate. He just makes the statement and he says this, right? And it's, it's a super difficult statement, but he says, oh, by the way, this Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's saying, y'all, you want forgiveness of sins? You want heaven? You ain't gonna get it through Moses. You ain't gonna get it through Abraham. You ain't gonna get it through your religious, you know, whatever, whatever. You want it, you gotta go through the stone that you threw out. How you like them apples? That's what he says. And not the apple part, but everything else. <laughs> now, how does a fisherman from Galilee, where does he get the gumption? Where does he get the 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 gall? or the authority to make a statement like that. How in the world can he say that? Who does he think he is to tell these guys that they got to come through Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, what in the world is that? You know, and if Peter was here this morning, he said, How can, where do you get that authority? Why do you come to that conclusion, Mr. Fisherman from Galilee? How in the world can you come to that conclusion? If he was here today, you know what he would say? He would say, I got one word for you. Resurrection. Resurrection. See, we can talk philosophy and religions of the world and blah, 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 and theology and all these things all you want. But in the end, 
you got to hitch your wagon to the guy who can answer the biggest question. What happens after this? What do you do about death? Because that's the question. What do you do with the death problem? Right? And so it doesn't really matter about this guy had a vision and this guy had big thoughts and this guy wrote all these things. Who can handle the death problem? Because Peter would say, see, he was dead and now he's alive. You deal with that. How do you deal with that? Right? It all rests there. And the reality is this. If it doesn't, why are we here? Because we're living in 2014, Savannah, Georgia. Why do I care about a, a, a political uprising caused by a Jewish carpenter who lived in first century Palestine? Why does that even matter to me? I could care less unless he can answer the death problem. Unless he can answer the, the what happens next problem. Because if, if he can answer that, then I'm like Peter. I'm going to hitch my wagon to that. Right? And that is why Peter is going to make this, it makes this statement, saying he is the only way. Now, does that bring tension in his culture with the Romans who say Caesar is God and Zeus is God and this is God and everyone's God? Does that bring tension to them saying, no, 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 Caesar is not God. He is not king. Jesus is it. Does that bring tension there? Mm-hmm. Does that bring tension for a bunch of uh, Jewish Pharisees who think that Jesus was a, a nothing, a stone that was rejected? Does that bring tension there? Mm-hmm. Does it bring tension in 2014 Savannah if I stand up here and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him? Yeah, it does. It does bring tension. Same tension, right? It's the same. It's a challenging statement. But here's what we have to be. Y'all, we have to be intellectually honest because there's a lot of Christians who are wishy-washy. And I may be wishy-washy in a lot of things, but I'm not about this one, right? We have to be honest. The Bible is very clear. Now, whether you believe the Bible or not is a completely different issue, but we cannot be intellectually honest and say, well, the Bible really doesn't say, and you know, we don't know about other faiths, and as long as they're sincere, and, and all, we can, that sounds so humble and sweet, but it's not intellectually honest, and it's not true. The Bible is very clear in what it claims, all right? Jesus was very clear in what it claims. Whether you believe it or not, it's a completely separate issue. But if you don't, you still got to come to the conclusion he was dead, he's alive, which is it. You cannot disprove that. But whether you believe the Bible or not, let's not be so silly. Say, well, it doesn't really say, Leo, we don't really know. That's, that's junk. It does say. And Jesus said, I am the way. And Peter, who knew him better than anyone else, says he's the only way. So when we say, well, it doesn't really, it does. And if Jesus is just one of many ways, then you got to answer this question. Then why does he have to die? Can't he skip the cross? If there's many ways, can he just kind of float down and say, be a good dude. Don't root for the braves and everything else will be great. I mean, can't he just come say, be nice, pray a couple times a day and go to heaven? And he can skip the cross? Why the cross if there's many ways? Because there's not many ways and because someone had to take your place on a cross and pay the penalty of sin. And he did it because he loves you. And then he rose again because he's God. And that is why Peter says he is the way. Right? And you say, well, Bill, that's a... Pretty arrogant statement for someone who is a PE major. Yeah, I get it. Right? But here's the reality. It would be arrogant if it's something that I created. If I actually thought of it myself. If I actually had anything to do with it. But here's the reality. The only thing I bring to this deal is my sinfulness. 
All I did was put Jesus on the cross. That's what I did. So I didn't create it. I put Jesus on a cross. He's the one who said it, and I'm just saying what he said. I didn't do anything. In fact, I didn't even seek after God because no one seeks after God. There is not one. All have turned away. All have sinned and fall short. So it would be an arrogant statement if we actually did something, but we do nothing. We don't even pursue God. He has to draw us. He has to open our eyes. He has to pursue us for us to even see him. So it's not arrogant because it's all about him. And this is why, by the way, I love the Reformed faith because it's all about what Christ has done, not what I do. It's all him. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. It's, it's him. So it's only arrogant if I have some place and some part in this, and I don't. He did it all. And you got to wrestle with that. And as a believer, you got to be able to explain that in a winsome and pleasant but yet truthful way. That's Peter. Right? And here's the here's kind of, kind of sad, side application for us. If it makes you happy, Christian, that you're right and everyone else is wrong, and you get a little bit of gleeness in your heart, then I would say that your heart is so far from the heart of God, I would question whether you really know him. Because if you are so excited that you're right and they're wrong, you are missing the heart of the Savior, who weeps over Jerusalem, who he knows is going to crucify him, that does not delight in the death of the wicked. How can you... Get excited about the fact that you're right about something that's going to send people apart from him for all eternity. The heart of God is the love of God. It's the delight to see people repent. Why is Peter even telling these people this? Not because he's getting mad, because he wants them to turn. He's saying, you killed him, but he's alive, and now you can believe in him too. That's the heart. That's what Peter's doing, right? That's why God has made you his witness not so you can be happy that everyone else is wrong, but so that they can see him and you and believe in the same hope and love and, and, and greatness of him that, that you have. That's why the church is here. If not, he can just, as soon as you believe, take you up to heaven, be gone, boop, good to go. He's left you as his witness to point to him. And so let's be very careful. We're like, yeah, they're wrong, we're right, woo, yeah. If that's our heart, then you need to repent of that. Right? And so these guys are standing there, their mouths are open. They're like, what in the world? Right? Verse 13, and they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The boldness, I, 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 the way I summarize that is the, the, the humble confidence. There is no fear, but there's not arrogance either. They're just like, they're at peace. There's a confidence there. And, and they see that they're uneducated. They're common men. Like this guy went to public school. Who is he? Right? It's just nobody. He's a fisherman from Galilee. It's just normal dudes. And they're bold. And I this is my favorite statement in the whole chapter, maybe the whole book. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that great? Think about it. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. If you get nothing else, the big takeaway today is we need to be a group of people who people, we walk away, and they're like, that guy was with Jesus. That guy was with Jesus. It's like the aroma of Christ when you're around. You think about that. I told you before, my wife has like this keen sense of smell, so I'll go out to lunch and I'll come home after a day of work and I'll give her a hug and give her a, hey, honey, how are you? And she'll be like, where'd you eat? And I'll be like, that, my dear, is wasabi. Ah, that's called Hirano's $4 special. That's what that is, Right? 
She just smells it on me. But the idea is that people just smell Christ on you. When you walk away, they're like, something. Have you ever been around someone like that? That you're just like, this is what Jesus was like. I mean, really, whether it's, you don't, I mean, whatever, think about why that is, because that's kind of something to think about and, and apply, but maybe it's the fact that they're just at such peace in a chaotic time. Maybe it's that they love people and see people you never see, and they just embrace them, and you, and you can't fathom it. Maybe it's the way they talk. But have you ever been around that guy, that gal, that's like, this is what Jesus was like? And then think about, do people ever think that about you? I mean, guys, when you get home from a long day at work, are your kids like, Dad's been with Jesus all day. Are they like, the devil just walked in the house. <laughs> Lucifer himself is home. I mean, right? Your employees, are they like, oh, here comes the man. Right? Your, your kids are like, mom has been hanging with the devil lately. What do they say? And I think just for me, practical application, that the number one way I think people will, will know that we've been with Jesus is not that we go to church, because everyone goes to church. But it, I think one of the biggest ways is the way you talk. I, mean, I just keep coming back to that with my own life. The way I respond when I'm reviled, do I revile in return? When I'm criticized, do I defend myself? When something is said harshly, do I respond? How do I speak to people, just in general? Do I go out of my way to be kind and, and, and loving? Do I open my mouth when God gives me an open door for the word that it may speak forth the mystery of Christ? Just all these things. I think that is a, a big way because that mouth speaks that which fills the heart. That's just one for me, right? So these guys, they're dumbfounded. They're, they got nothing. And I love verse 14. It says, but seeing the man who was healed by standing beside them, they had nothing to say. What are they gonna say? And actually, they commanded them to leave, and they're conferring with one another. But you think, of, they're over there talking. And the guy's over there, like, waving. I mean, they're doing the run. I mean, they don't know, they don't know what to do. And they, and they admit it. They say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. They're, it's a subjective deal, but they're seeing a changed life sitting in front of them. They're like, what are we going to do with it? We don't, we don't know what to do. And notice how this is so flipped. They are shocked at what's going on inside the church. It's, and then it's freaking them out. What is it? The opposite is true in our culture, right? The church is like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. What's how bad the world is. We're freaking out what's going on outside the church. Back then, it's they're freaking out what's going on inside the church. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But they say, okay, what are we going to do? Here's a plan. It's a brilliant plan. Well thought out. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in, anyone's, in this man's name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Brilliant plan. Don't talk about Jesus. That's going to work real well, right? Real well. Don't do it. Stop. And I love Peter's gentle but truthful response. He flips it back on him again. He says, y'all, that's a southerner. He's a southerner. He's from Galilee. Well, y'all, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He says, hey, you tell me, what would you do if you were in my shoes? If God told you to do something, would you listen to God or would you listen to you? 
You tell me, because we cannot but speak. And it's a double negative in the Greek, which in English, a double negative is, it flips it, makes it positive. But in the Greek, it makes it doubly strong. So it's, we cannot, cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't stop, right? We can't stop. In the words of Journey, don't stop believing, right? Dude, I got an 80s on the brain this morning, man. I'm rolling, right? But that, that's where they're at. We can't stop. And, and he's respectful, but, but, but we can't do it. We cannot stop. We must obey God. We're going to see in a couple weeks rather than man. And, and, and here's, the idea, here's the idea for us. As a church, we're always looking for opportunities to disobey. That's what we are. We always want, we want to, 1776 all over again. We want to rebel. This is the nature of us. We're looking for the opportunity to rebel. And what Peter is modeling here is we obey the government. We obey the authorities until they tell us to disobey. And then we say we, we have to respectfully disagree. So when the government says, stop going to church, we start doing it in the wilderness, we start doing it in the woods, whatever it is, but we do it. The government says, don't pray, I Daniel. Daniel says, I gotta pray. God says to pray, so I pray. And sometimes you get thrown to the lions, and sometimes God rescues you, and sometimes you don't, like John the Baptist. But we must obey God. Now, the problem is the church is always looking at how to disobey faster than they ought to. Right? Because here's the reality. We live in America, 2014, not Iraq, not Syria, not China. And most of us are never going to have to lay it down on the line. Maybe some of you, God's going to move you to a place you might have to. In America right now, as of today, your faith is not under attack like it is with our brothers and sisters in Iraq. Okay? This is the reality. But let me just tell you this. It will be one day. And it might be 20 years, and it might be 200, and it might be 2,000. But I can tell you, I've read the end, and you're, in, you're encouraged to do that too, Revelation. Read Revelation 13. Eventually, the entire world, if they bow the knee to Jesus, will be killed. The entire world. You won't be able to eat. You won't be able to buy. You won't be able to sell unless you choose to reject Christ. So it's not here now, and it may not be in any of our lifetime, but it eventually will be, okay? It eventually will. But for now, what we want to do is we want to be witnesses, and, and we want to face whatever opposition we may face, and we want to handle it like these guys. Let me tell you what opposition and persecution is not, and then we'll talk about what it is, because I think there's a little bit of confusion sometimes for us in America. Here, let me give you a couple things persecution for us as a church is not. It's not, number one, my boss is mean. And he doesn't like me, and he makes me work hard. And sometimes he yells at me. And he just doesn't like me because I'm a Christian. Maybe. Or maybe you're just sorry. <laughs> maybe no one wants to get those chain emails, for this to seven people you love if you love Jesus, and he'll bless you. Maybe they're sick of getting those at your work. Maybe you shouldn't be doing your quiet time when you're supposed to be working. Do it on lunch or do it before. See, just because your boss is mean doesn't mean you're being persecuted. Just because you got a C on your paper doesn't mean it's because you're a Christian. Maybe your paper stunk and you need to do a better job next time at formulating your argument. So we got to be careful that we're not associating. Just because things are hard, that's persecution. Peter says, don't suffer as a troublesome meddler. Don't suffer as a gossip. Don't suffer as a thief. If you're going to suffer, you suffer for Christ, for being a Christian. Right? So it's not because my boss is mean, my professor is mean. It's not 
It's not that you're, you're, people don't like me because I believe in this. And you're pushing your convictions, not necessarily biblical commands, but your convictions on gray areas on everybody else. And what you're doing is you're projecting what your conviction is, and everyone should have this conviction. What we call, that's called legalism, right? And it's not that, well, no one likes me because I'm taking a stand on this. No one, no one invites you over for dinner because they really don't want to hear it anymore. And they don't want you on your soapbox telling them how you ought to do this, that, and the other because this is the way we do it. This is the way we do school. This is the way we don't do that. This is the way we dress. This is the way, and no one wants to hear anymore what your views are. And so it's not persecution. It's just you're kind of obnoxious. And the church has filled with it, right? And if the Lord, don't say thus saith the Lord unless the Lord saith, okay? So don't make your convictions which are great and true, and God may be leading you to do that, don't make your convictions everyone's convictions, all right? Because sometimes you're going to put people off that God has convicted them in a different way, and that's okay, right? That's all right. So that's not persecution. And it's also not persecution when your candidate loses, right? When your guy get, takes a whooping at the polls... That's not persecution. Is the church supposed to be engaged with social issues? Absolutely. Is there sinners on both aisles? Absolutely. And it's, Jesus is not endorsing your political party, believe it or not. Right? He doesn't endorse. Remember the story of Joshua? Fought the battle of Jericho, and Joshua's out, and he's thinking, and he's got these huge walls, and he, and he runs into the captain of the Lord of hosts, who's in charge of heaven's armies, and we argued that that's a pre-incarnate Christ before Bethlehem, and Joshua goes up and says, are you on our team, or are you on their team? And he says, wrong question. I'm in charge here. The question is not, whose team am I on? It's, whose team are you on? That's the question. So the, the idea of God endorsing a political party, he doesn't endorse, he is the king. Okay, you endorse him. He doesn't endorse you. And so just because your group gets whooped doesn't mean you're under persecution. Be engaged in the social issues because the church is called to be light, but don't, don't attribute Jesus to your political party. Don't Jesusize your party, all right? Unless you're gonna root for him and vote for him and write his name on the ballot, Jesus, and then you're all right, you can endorse that. All right, fill in that, all right? He's gonna win regardless of what you vote for him or not, just so let me tell you that eventually, all right? But that's what it's not. Here's what it is. Here's what it might look like for us in our context, is that you, as a man or a woman, you go off on a business trip, and you know the group's going out to do that, and you know you can't go. And it's not the issue of whether I can go or not, because most of us know that. But how do you respond to that? Is it, well, I just have a headache, and I'm tired, and yeah, I, I'm just going to go. You guys have fun. See, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. That's a lie. It's... I cannot do that because I'm a follower of Jesus. Just no, I can't do that. Sorry. Now that is standing up. But oh, I have a headache and oh, I got too much work to do and oh, it's a cop out. So how do you respond in that situation? And then in the morning when they're all like, how are you gonna respond to that? See, that, that's, that's an example of what might happen. Or maybe at the office they're asking you to, yeah, hey, just don't put that number down just like that. And mm, we're not gonna talk about that. And you gotta keep that under wraps. And we're gonna shave off the, this and that because we, we need the margins to be bigger. And you as a Christian have a choice to be, become a liar or one who exposes truth. And if you know you are exposed truth, you could be out of a, out of a job or never get promoted. 
So that is what we're talking about. Or maybe you're a high school kid or a college kid, and you know that that, that guy finally asked me out. <laughs> but you know he's not a believer, and you know what he really wants. But I think he's been waiting for six months, and he finally noticed me. You have a choice. Are you going to stand on your, on your grounds of purity? Or are you going to compromise because you want to be liked? If I stand on my grounds of purity, no one will ever ask me out again, and everyone's going to know tomorrow because he's going to tell. That's what we're talking about. Or maybe it's being the object of lies, right? The slander are always slanders. I hear things about our church, and I'm like, who even said that? Have they ever even been here? Really? Right? They're going to lie about you. Christians are saying, oh, Christians hate science. I hate science. Christians hate sex. No, we don't. We encourage it in the context of marriage. Christians hate homosexual. No, we don't. We love them just like Christ does. Right? Christians hate women. No, don't hate women either. Like 75% of us are women. <laughs> but all sorts of lies. But they, but they lied about Christ. They called Jesus a drunk. They called him immoral. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They called them all those things, and so it's okay. That might happen. Or maybe people start distancing themselves from you because you're just no fun. You don't go out and do that like you used to, and when you go to the party, you're the Debbie and blah, blah, blah. And so they'd start slowly distancing themselves. And it starts to hurt because I'm not asked out like this. And my buddies are no longer, and they're ignoring me. And, you know, that's a real deal. And no one, look, no one likes to be marginalized. No one likes to be ostracized. I don't. But we cannot become sellouts and try to make Jesus more acceptable to the world so that they will like us. You just can't do it for a fear. This is what's going on in the Gospel of John. There's all these religious authorities who believe in Jesus. They believe what he says, but they're so scared of the Pharisees, they they don't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They love the glory that comes from man other than the glory that comes from God. And what that is, is honestly, that is, is middle school. That's, what, that's middle school. It's, it's, a, it's a middle school way of thinking. They might not like me. When I grew up as middle schoolers, we were cool. You know what we did? We went to, we went to the roller rink. Yeah. Rocking to some Journey and some REO Speedwagon. Man, we were the coolest kids, man. And we'd be there. But you know what the hardest thing was at the roller rink? When couples skate came on. <laughs> right? I mean, this is pre-rollerblades, y'all. This is the four-winged, yeah, you know, cool. And you do not want to be left on the wall in couples. I mean, you can go over the arcade, but everyone knew all the kids in the arcade were like, mm-hmm, no one's skating with them. <laughs> At the same time, you didn't want to be the guy especially when you're like 12 years old and like three feet tall like me, but you know, whatever. You, you don't want to be the guy who goes up to a girl and say, will you skate with me? And they say, no, no, I ain't skate with you. I'd rather play video games. You don't want to be that person, right? You just don't because there's this desire to be liked and you want to be the guy that's cool and going backwards a couple skating. That's like the, <laughs> that's the dream, right? I mean, you're really the cool, you've arrived if you can do backwards a couple skates. But see, but that... That's that same thinking. I want people to like me. I don't want to be left on the wall. I want to be not the one at the arcade. And, but that's the reality of what these guys are doing. I want them to like me. If the goal is popularity, something along the line is going to be sacrificed. Your purity, your relationship with Christ, 
or being liked. Because eventually, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are a witness and you're living your life with purpose, there will be opposition and you will be ostracized. So no, not if I'm super loving and super kind. Who is more loving, kind, gracious, faithful, and gentle than Jesus? And they hated him and they killed him. You think you're going to be more loving than Jesus? More gentle than Jesus? I mean, think about these guys. Peter and them, they're in trouble. Why are they in trouble? They healed a guy. That's kind of a good thing. I mean, we go to the doctor. The doctor does surgery. We're like, thanks, doc. My leg's fixed. Thank you so much. Here's my money. We, I mean, that's a good thing. These guys heal a dude. They're in jail. How much more good can we do? Why, then why is there persecution? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. The enemy hates your soul, and he hates Christ, and he hates the church, and he hates forgiveness of sins, and so he will oppose because you are against him. And so we expect it, right? Because they hated Christ. We don't revel in that, but we don't fear it. And here's what they do. Let me just give you four quick things that they do as we close this out. Verse 23, number one, they do. When they were released, they went to their friends. I think that's key. They went to their friends. They had a group of people that they were doing life with that they could share life with when they're hurting, when they're, when they're suffering, when they're scared, they can go to them. That's what the church is. That's why they're meeting in homes. That's why we have community groups. That's why all this stuff. You need some friends. Because when you go home, college student, and you're the only Christian, and everyone's like, what in the world are you getting taught? I'm paying this much dollars, and you come back talking about this? You need a friend, and not a Facebook friend. A legit person that I can sit down and have coffee with and hug, friend. Right? To talk and say it's okay. You need that. When your husband is not a believer, and you are, and you're not getting any encouragement there, you need a friend to say, it's okay, you can do this. You need a friend, right? And so community is essential to what we've been doing, and we keep coming back to that. But they go to their friends, and what else do they do? And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, notice what they say, sovereign Lord. Second thing they do, they go to their friends, and they trust in the sovereignty of God. The idea that God is in control, that there is nothing that escapes his notice, even this suffering, even this struggle. And what they end up doing is they go and quote Psalm chapter 2, which is, says, why do the nations rage, and why do they go against God, and why do they do all these things? The rulers are gathering against the Lord. And they're saying, Lord, this is what you talked about. They did it to Jesus. Now they're doing it to us. And you are sovereign, and you are in control of this, and we trust you. Because it is better to be in the middle of your will where we are struggling than outside your will where everything is nice and calm. And so they trust in the sovereignty of God. And if you're facing opposition a little bit, and there's a little bit of struggle, and there's a little bit of this, you need to understand it's okay, it's normal, and that God is completely in control. And even if you lose your head, which is not probably going to happen in this culture right now, but even if you do, that God is in control of that, because he lost his life. And he asks us to lay down ours if necessary. But they trust in the sovereignty of God. And then they cry out. And I love how they identify with Jesus here. right? They go back to 
that they're doing this against the Lord and the Lord is anointed, verse 26. And then, and truly in this city, they were gathered together against your servant, Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles to all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did this to Jesus because that was the plan, but they did it, they're doing it to us and they're, they're really being able to identify with the Lord Jesus here. They did it to him, now they're doing it to us. And I think there's something there where we cry out to our Savior, to the one who identifies with us. Does Jesus know what it's like to be rejected by his father? Yeah. Does Jesus know what it's like for his brothers to think he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Yeah. Does Jesus know what it's like to, to be alone? Does he know what it's like to have a friend turn his back on him? Does he know what it's like to suffer physical harm? Does he know what it's like to lose his life for truth? And so what can you go through in life that you cannot, he cannot sympathize with you? Nothing. I think there's something there that they get with their friends and they trust in the sovereignty of God and then they, they can identify with the suffering of Christ because he identifies with us. And then finally, look what they pray. This, this, this blows my mind because this is not what I would pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. If I'm in that situation, you know what I'm praying? Lord, I've been a pretty good dude for the last three and a half years. I've been following you everywhere you went. I've been sleeping out under the stars. I've been fishing. I've been on rock and roll boats. I've been all over the place. These guys are bad dudes. I would like you to melt their brains for me, please. <laughs> or if you'd like me to do it, I would be glad. I've, you know, give me the lightning, the Jedi lightning. I'll do it right there. It'll be cool. Everyone will see it. They'll fear us. Yeah. But remove that dude is what I'd be praying. But what are they praying? Lord, just give us perseverance. Just give us boldness. They're not praying for it to be removed. They're praying to be bold in it, to persevere. And so if you're in that or you're going to face it, if you're the, the single mom that's struggling with this and this, this family is attacking you, and, and if you're the, the, the college student, the high school student that's getting made fun of, don't pray for them to get their brains melted, but pray that you wouldn't quit. Pray that you would persevere, that God would give you boldness to not be arrogant, to not be a jerk, but to be truthful and loving and gentle. That's what we pray. And that's the kind of prayer that God is like, they want to identify with me and my suffering. Man, I'm going to move in that and I'm going to use that for my glory. And sure enough, man, they prayed. The place which they're gathered together was shaken. It was rocking and rolling. There's like some kind of earthquake. And they're all filled with the Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Because anytime there's a filling of the Spirit, there's always a speaking. And that's what happens. There's a powerful thing. Powerful thing. Right? And... And there's nothing more powerful than a group of people who are identifying with Christ and his suffering. There's nothing more powerful than a group of people who, who are thrown back into the culture as a changed life and their, and their life is different. And people see that. I remember went to my five-year reunion at the Citadel and I was a little bit of a wild man at the Citadel, just a little bit, a little bit. Um, and I came back for five years, married, two kids and heading off to seminary and people were like, And some of them were already known that I had become a Christian, and they're like, eh, you know, whatever, and they kind of started pulling back from me. I was usually the first guy they called. They want to go out. Fowler will go out. Yeah, but it's four in the morning. He's awake, I tell you. Go, go get him, right? <laughs> go, Fowler will go. 
And, you know, I mean, I'm at this reunion. I got my kids, and they're like, are you drinking sweet tea? I'm like, yeah, you're not passed out by now. No, I'm good. I'm completely sober, right? And it was just a different, and they were, like, shocked. And, and some of them, you know what? They pulled away. Didn't, I didn't get invited out that night to go hang out with the guys. Nobody called me the Friday before because they knew. Right? There's just there's something radically different. And I wasn't, like, mega Christian. It just was, there was a difference. But there was one guy, I remember his name was Pat Regan. And me and Pat... We had some times together. New Orleans, 1996, oh my. But I hadn't seen him in five years. And he was like, you're going to seminary? What's that all about? And he just, it was intriguing to him. And we started talking, through, he lives in Michigan, and we started talking that week and had conversations. And through multiple conversations, Patrick Regan, who I had many a wild time, many wild nights with, he becomes a believer. And I head off to seminary, and he joins my support team, financially supporting me and my wife. He's a 28-year-old dude living in Lansing, Michigan. He's sending me 100 bucks a month so I can get through seminary. I graduate seminary, go to work for First Church, and he ends up getting married to a Christian gal. And, and you know, I haven't talked to him a couple years, but last I heard, he was doing great. See, there's, there's something powerful about a changed life. And yes, some people are going to be, we are going to be, this is what Paul says, If we're the aroma of Christ, it is going to be sweet to some, and it'll be life to some, and it will be death to others. But regardless if it's life or death, we will be the aroma of Christ, and that is the key. And if we get nothing else, what do we want to be? We just want to be a 1,000 people sent out into the city of Savannah that have been with Jesus, that they recognize that gal. She smells like Jesus. That guy, tell him about him. He's been with Jesus. If you're here this morning, guess what? Jesus is here because he's in the middle of his church. And you can say that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and God has brought you here, and I am so glad he has, he said, I don't get this whole Christian thing. I don't understand it. You grab me afterwards, and I'll get you. We'll sit down and set up an appointment, or I'll call you, or you can grab a good one of our elders, or I'll put somebody with you if you have questions right now. But here's, here's the deal. You were a sinner separated from God because of your sin. He loved you so much that he left heaven. He became a man. He died on a cross in your place for your sins. He rose again, proving that his sacrifice was accepted, proving that he is God. And he says, if you turn from your sin, repentance, and you believe in me, that what I have done, you can have eternal life. Like, should I go to church? Should I get baptized? You believe, and that is it. What he has done is sufficient, Right? He is the only way. Well, what about this? And that He is the way or he is no way. Because if he is not the way, then he is a liar or a crazy man or something else. Because he said he was the way. And we'd love to talk with you about that. But as those who have believed, we would love for us to stand and worship him because of who he is. So let's do that right now. Let me pray and let's worship. Lord Jesus, you are true. You are holy. You are a God, and we worship you, and I pray that you, as we sing, would be exalted. And I pray for someone in this room. I know there's someone that doesn't know you. They're not certain for sure if today they died, they would spend eternity with you in heaven. Lord, open their eyes to the glory of Christ and the gospel, that they have a need and that you have met the need. And just by simply believing in you, trusting what you have done for them, that you died and rose again, that they can have eternal life. And those of us, Lord, who have experienced that, Fill us with your spirit right now so that we will speak with boldness of the the works of Christ and that 
please, 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 may we be a people who are, it's recognized that we have been with Jesus.